Welcome to the award-winning QuackCast 61. Actually, this particular podcast is not award-winning, but in general, this QuackCast has won People's Choice Award two years in a row. And I am sure you are sick unto death of my bragging, but hey, it's because of you. It's your fault, not mine. Anyway, this one is called Deadly Indeed, or Why I Am Waiting for the SI Swimsuit Issue. This was mostly published as a science-based medicine blog, but has some new material for those of you who have read that entry. There are sources of information I am inclined to accept with minimal questioning. I do not have the time to examine everything in excruciating detail, and, like most people, use intellectual shortcuts to get through the day. If the journal article comes from Clinical Infectious Diseases or the New England Journal of Medicine, I am inclined to accept the conclusions without a great deal of analysis, especially for non-infectious disease articles. Infectious disease publications, I have to read more closely. It's part of being an expert. Outside of medicine, I am predisposed to accepting at face value many of the articles in Skeptic and Skeptical Inquirer. They are trusted sources. Some topics, like haunted houses or Bigfoot, or houses haunted by Bigfoot, I barely skim. After all these years, I doubt there will be any new insights into the subjects. Other topics, depending upon my interest, I may read more carefully. I often read the longer articles many times. First, a quick skim to see if it offers anything of interest, and then, if it does, I may read it carefully. This month's Skeptical Inquirer has an article called Seven Deadly Medical Hypotheses by Reynold, yeah, Reynold, R-E-Y-N-O-L-D, Specter. Just seeing the title and knowing the magazine, I was primed to accept the content at face value. I enjoy a well-reasoned, thoughtful rant. I relish the clever diatribe, even if I do not agree with the topic. So I gave it a quick skim. I was discomfited. My first gut check was, Ick. but I was uncertain why. So I read it slowly and carefully, and still, Ick. but why? There is a degree of self-absorption in being a podcaster. I can talk about anything I want, any way I want. I remain amazed at how much I can get away with. The process of doing a podcast about a topic helps me to clarify, in my own mind, issues with articles. The author of Seven, as I shall refer to the article, has over 200 published articles, is a former executive vice president in charge of drug development at Merck, and oversaw the development of 15 drugs and vaccines. Who am I? I am a big mouth nobody from nowhere who just takes care of infected patients for a living. So, from an argument of authority, he wins. I am just an E. coli evaluating a human being. Oh well, this is more an exercise for me to enlighten myself, and you are the innocent bystander. Overall, the tone of Seven, it reminded me of the Health Ranger at naturalnews.com. Really, lots of dramatic statements, no qualifiers, no buts, no subtlety, no nuance. To me, what marks good medical writing, besides Mark Chrislop, is an understanding that there is far more gray than black and white, and that generally people are doing the best they can within numerous limitations. 
One of the many characteristics of the Health Ranger is hyperbole without nuance. The Health Ranger has a belief system, and he sees the medical industrial complex through that belief system. Information is never used to deny his belief system, only to confirm it. For the Health Ranger, information is always used to support a predetermined conclusion. The Health Ranger has a bombastic style that is both self-assured and self-referential. So, let's see what Seven has to say. It begins, quote, A chronic scandal plagues the medical and nutritional literature. Much of what is published is erroneous, pseudoscientific, or worse. Okay, I'll grant the first. I am an Ionides convert, if that's how you pronounce his last name. The second, that everything is pseudoscientific, seems hyperbole and exaggeration. Pseudoscientific, like homeopathy, psi, astrology. I'm sorry, but the author is now 17 words into his essay, and he has lost me. I already question his veracity and his judgment. I do read the literature, hundreds of papers a month, some in great detail. I know the literature, and sir... It is not pseudoscientific. Suboptimal? Yeah, often, but not pseudoscientific. And his third point? What could be worse than pseudoscientific? Oh yeah, Wakefield's Lancet article. But fraud is a rare exception in the over 20 million references on PubMed. The author's opening salvo strikes me as someone who's more interested in polemic than truth. Remind you of anybody? If done with vervent panache and above all wit, I'd love a good polemic. Pomposity with hyperbole, not so much. And calling the medical literature erroneous, pseudoscientific, or worse, tends to lean towards the latter. So the author continues with, quote, Two major factors account for a large proportion of this problem. First, many medical and nutritional hypotheses are ill-conceived, end quote. Are they? Over 20 million references on PubMed. A few, perhaps, were ill-conceived before they were tested. Say, I don't know, measles vaccine inducing gastroenteritis to cause autism? No, actually not even that. If approached honestly and competently, it would be a long shot, but often you never know unless you look. That is what a great deal of medical research is about, looking around to see if an etiology or intervention or medication will be effective, hypothesis generating. Most ideas, I would guess, go nowhere. It's not as simple as the author thinks. People get into medicine who actually want to do good. They want to help people. And that bias seeps into what they do. There's a nice review of this in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Yes, I know. Something good in the annals. Who'd have thunk it? And it's called Clinical Trials, Discerning Hype from Substance by Dr. Thomas R. Fleming. To quote from the summary, with a problem from the literature, quote, The desire to report favorable results is an important source of bias in clinical trials. The goal of research should be to determine whether the experimental intervention has a favorable benefit to risk profile rather than prove that it does. Trial reports should clearly specify and focus on analyses of the primary and secondary endpoints, 
In exploratory analyses, an understanding of the sampling context is necessary to interpret fee values, and random high bias leads to overestimation of outcomes having particularly favorable estimates. Exploratory analyses should be labeled as hypothesis generating and requiring confirmation. Meta-analysis that include hypothesis generating data may be biased, end quote. Why is this? Well, this is because, and again I quote from the author, exploratory analyses are conducted with the intention to identify positive evidence for interventions and consider measures to reduce the risks, dot, dot, dot. The interest in being able to report favorable results is pervasive in the healthcare research, dot, dot, dot. Exploratory analyses should provide an opportunity for enhanced insight. However, if these exploratory analyses are conducted with an intention to establish that it, the experimental intervention has a favorable benefit to risk profile rather than determine whether it does, there is a substantial risk for obtaining meaningfully biased conclusion. Indeed, as is often stated, if you torture the data long enough, they will confess, end quote. So that's a problem. People want to do good, and that bias and enthusiasm slips into the medical literature to bias the results. And we are all aware of that. As Richard Feynman said, quote, The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. So you have to be very careful about that. After you've not fooled yourself, it's not easy to fool other scientists. And most people, most of the time, spend their time fooling themselves. His next problem. Second, the methods used are often epistemologically unsound. Well, you got me there. What is epistemologically unsound? Even after looking up epistemologically on the interwebs, I don't know what it means. I expect that there will be comments that will school me on the meaning of epistemologically unsound. I guess that's why. I'm a lowly clinician. Moreover, he continues, the same unsound methods are often repeated multiple times on the same tired hypotheses with the same incorrect results, end quote. So isn't that three major factors? Or is that the unsound epistemological I cannot understand? I really shouldn't quibble about counting, given the screwed up numbers of this podcast, but I feel a rising tide of ridicule and scorn. I don't know if I want to hold it back. I'm not even done with the first paragraph, and the author has epistemologically lost me. Maybe there's a good reason to be unsettled with the article. I mean, I'm in the first five sentences, and there are four references, and they were all to works by the author to justify his position. I tend to prefer external references in my literature that hyperbolic self-validation, as I said, is what I expect from the health ranger and his ilk. But again, who am I to question? Quote, There is an epidemic of published studies that do not follow the principles of sound medical science, the principles demanded by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the licensure and sale of medications. End quote. Well, probably because many studies are preliminary and exploratory. The rigor demanded by the FDA is the final step in a long process, starting with basic principles and perhaps epidemiology. 
I can't imagine we should jump to huge, randomized, placebo-controlled trials for every therapy and to answer every question. It seems a wee bit excessive to me. In medicine, you start small and you build. The downside is that there will be dead ends and false conclusions at the beginning. The upside is that in the end, there is a close approximation of the truth with a big T that will be determined. Now, the author loves to put things into quotes, so you'll hear me saying quotes a lot. He continues, quote, The resulting, quote, findings, unquote, of such misleading or erroneous studies are often hyped by the news media on the day they are reported or published without any additional or careful analysis, end quote. Hyped, quote, findings, unquote? Nothing like that in the first two paragraphs of this essay. Ooh, nothing like that here. Nothing's here but a well-reasoned, careful, nuanced prologue for the body of your essay. Quote, I, unquote, am always, quote, mistrustful, unquote, of people who use, quote, quotes, end quote, as a form of, quote, sarcasm, unquote, when sarcasm is not used for good, quote, effect, unquote, like, quote, humor, unquote, because otherwise you come across as, quote, supercilious, unquote. Now I am beginning to understand my discomfiture. Still, that's the first two paragraphs. I mean, this is Skeptical Inquirer, right? The body of this will be much better, correct? The author then proceeds to the background of how to do a good study, generate a plausible, testable hypothesis, and then test it. He uses the Scandinavian simvastatin survival study as an example of medicine done right. Simvastatin was a Merck product, if you care, and he was the vice president of Merck. And he bemoans that not every study meets this high standard. Too many published studies fail to adhere to these high scientific standards and lead to faulty and even dangerous conclusions, he says. Which is true, and to my mind, understandable, since there are not the resources and time to do perfect studies on every hypothesis every time. Not every car is a Lexus, and not every restaurant a Michelin three-star rating. You can't always get what you want. And if you try some time, you might find you get what you need. The issue, to my mind, is not whether there are suboptimal studies. They are often used to find hypotheses that can be tested in better trials. A large part of research is flailing about looking for something interesting to investigate in further detail. Not everyone has the resources to test everything using the hypothetical deductive method to answer all questions, like the FDA demands. Although this is not always the preferred method for generating ideas to test. I don't need to use a bunch of spurious quotes to cast aspersions on the validity of information or to generate guilt by association. I have learned a thing or two from reading The Health Ranger over the years. I wonder how many suboptimal studies it required to get to the point of the Scandinavian Simvastatin survival study. The concepts in that study did not appear fully formed from the void. The author does not, as it will be seen, pay any attention to the history of medicine and the context of the evolution of medical ideas. The author then proceeds to his seven deadly hypotheses. Well, one deadly, six not so much. But guilt by association is a game paid by the author of seven as well. Number one, the investigator does not need a specific hypothesis 
or can use an inadequate method to test hypotheses. The author uses the example of epidemiology generated by case control in cohort studies, the kind of studies that led to the simvastatin study, and the effects of hormone replacement therapy. He points out that these epidemiologic studies, for a variety of reasons, can lead to erroneous conclusions. Big duh there. But the other option? With no preliminary studies, we should jump straight to a huge trial. And sometimes epidemiology can lead to important results, like that a certain pump is the epicenter of cholera, or that chimney sweets have more testicular cancer, or that lowering cholesterol is associated with a decrease in vascular deaths. Epidemiology is part of a continuum of understanding and evolution of medical knowledge. But straw men are easier to burn than to recognize the stuttering, somewhat chaotic process of medical knowledge. If proving a point is more important than understanding complexity, this is how you argue. He then proceeds to the genome-wide association studies that have been a disappointment for elucidating genetic causes of heart disease and Alzheimer's. The author considers the genome-wide association studies, GWAS, a failure. I suppose if you have a narrow perspective, yeah, that's been a failure. So far, huge amounts of information about the genome have been generated, and I'm always a fan of knowledge for knowledge's sake. In the world of infectious diseases, there are single-gene polymorphisms in the immune system that can increase or decrease a patient's risk to a variety of infection. Is it of clinical relevance yet? No. Is it interesting? You betcha. Will it lead to new treatments and diagnostic interventions in the future? I don't know. But trying new ideas may fail and still lead to insights that may better lead to interventions. I would wonder what secondary advances in technology and understanding were accomplished as a result of the GWAS studies. It's like complaining that the Apollo program will only put 12 people on the moon, so the program is a bust since we are not all going to the moon for vacation. Now, here's a dirty little secret from a mere clinician. I have learned far more from failure than I ever have from success. The most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not Eureka, I have found it, but that's funny. That quote is from Isaac Asimov. If you are a clinician, a practicing doctor, it's not, that's funny, but, oh shit, that really drives change and knowledge. Two, if women replace these missing hormones postmenopausally with hormone replacement therapy, they will remain youthful and not suffer heart disease, dementia, vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and fractured bones. Now, I remember the late 80s, the time when hormone replacement therapy, henceforth called HRT, was in its heyday. I was in my internal medicine training, and we discussed this issue at length, not only in the clinic, but with my mother. I remember discussing the epidemiologic data and the worries of cancer. The author states that, quote, based on these biased studies, false claims were made about HRT protected against cardiovascular disease and dementia, end quote. As if we knew it was false at the time. It was the best guess based on the data and the epidemiology, and it gave insights that could have been confirmed or denied later by better studies. He also says, quote, the proponents ignore the well-documented fact that estrogen is a 
carcinogen that causes breast cancer that can kill women, and that, quote, HRT caused a 25% increase in breast cancer, end quote. Now, I do not know where the author was practicing, but I remember talking with my patients, I know, flawed memory, and my mother about the relative risks and complications of cancer and fracture and hormone replacement therapy. And a 25% increase in breast cancer? Man, that's bad. So what was the study? Well, they looked at, quote, 16,608 patients. There was more invasive breast cancer compared with placebo. 385 cases versus 293 cases, or a difference of 0.42% per year versus 0.34% per year. And the estrogen group had higher mortality, 25 deaths versus 12 deaths a year. That is bad. But equally bad is the way the author presented the data. The same author who complains in the opening paragraphs about complex data being presented as looking, quote, superficially adequate to the unsophisticated reader, end quote. But I know when someone is presenting information in a manipulating manner designed to blow smoke out of a usually inaccessible area. If you selectively quote the relative risk but ignore the absolute risk, then maybe you are a redneck. No, not a redneck. I mean, maybe you have an axe to grind. In a section worthy of the Vaccine Council, or Dr. Mercola, it sounds like people deliberately ignored cancer risk and pushed estrogen to kill women. Someone mentioned hype? I know it is important to make a point, but those who were investigating HRT at the time and prescribing it, as I did, were doing it carefully and acknowledging that there could be risks. Information does not exist in a vacuum. I'm talking to my patients and my mother in the late 80s. I basically said, based on the odds, how do you want to live your life? Fracture, cancer. Some were more worried about getting a life-debilitating fracture than they were of getting cancer. My mother has always been far more worried about an incapacitating illness than a life-threatening illness. From an article at the time, here comes a long quote. I hate these long quotes, but what are you going to do? They work. Quote, Lifetime risk is a useful way to estimate and compare the risk of various conditions. Hip fractures, Collie's fractures, and coronary heart disease, and breast and endometrial cancers are important conditions in postmenopausal women that might be influenced by the use of hormone replacement therapy. We use population-based data to estimate a woman's lifetime risk of suffering a hip, Collie's, or vertebral fracture and her risk of dying of coronary artery disease. A 50-year-old white woman has a 16% chance of having a hip fracture, a 15% risk of developing a Collie's fracture, a 32% risk of suffering a vertebral fracture during her remaining life. These risks exceed her risk of developing breast or endometrial cancer. She has a 31% chance of dying of coronary artery disease, which is about 10 times greater than her risk of dying of hip fractures or breast cancer. These lifetime risks provide a useful description of the comparative risks of conditions that might be influenced by postmenopausal hormone therapy, end quote. That's from an article of the time. Also, a New England Journal editorial from the same time says as follows. So this is the medical environment at the time when we were considering HRT therapy. Quote, 
evidence that estrogen increases the risk of breast cancer has been surprisingly difficult to obtain. Clinical and epidemiologic studies and studies in animals strongly suggest that endogenous estrogen plays a part in causing breast cancer. If so, exogenous estrogen should be a potent promoter of breast cancer. Although more than 20 case control and prospective studies on the relation of breast cancer and non-contraceptive estrogen use have failed to demonstrate the expected association, relatively few women in these studies have used estrogen for extended periods of time, end quote. So back in the day, we didn't know, and the data at the time suggested it didn't cause breast cancer. We were concerned. What was worse, breaking your hip or the potential for breast cancer? My mom would vote for broken hip. That was the kind of information and conversations about HRT I was having with patients in my clinic as I completed my residency, the years that the author was at Merck developing drugs. Many patients were far more worried about the disability and pain of fractures than they were of breast cancer. In continued hyperbole that was totally disconnected from what I remember at the time, he calls HRT a, quote, flagrant example of harm done by staying from the principles of hypothetical deductive approach in sound clinical science, end quote. Where was he 20 years ago? As Satyana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to make exaggerated, erroneous conclusions about what happened, or something like that. I mean, really, did this guy ever take care of patients? Has he ever had to make decisions based upon incomplete information? We are only into number two of seven, and he lost me with the hysteria. I wonder how he would have recommended exploring the effects of reigning estrogen on the health of women. Jump straight to a large trial? Do no preliminary work? Ignore potential leads? What is the alternative to the incremental and often erroneous results of medical understanding? How about fluoride and tooth decay? So many insights start with a guess and a little epidemiology. Sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't. But you really don't know unless you try. Evil hypothesis number three. If small doses of vitamins are good for humans, very large doses would be better for everyone. He then notes that the studies that show this hypothesis were wrong, but it was only known after the fact, after the studies. And in part, perhaps using vitamins like drugs would have beneficial effects. Then there's this odd summary, quote, megavitamin therapy in properly controlled trials either does nothing or is harmful, except in a few well-defined exceptions, end quote. So it does nothing except when it does. And how would we know the well-defined exceptions unless, hmm, we did clinical trials? He goes from complaining about the science to complaining about the regulatory and commercial issues of megavitamins, changing arguments in midstream. So is it the science, or is it how the science is reported? The latter usually stinks on ice, but they are two different issues. Now this is getting tedious, even for me. But I will soldier on although this is a re-re-re-reading of seven that is increasingly painful. The closer I read, the greater the errors and manipulations, a Mandelbrot set of manipulative medical writing. Soon I will find the indefinite articles and the pronoun suspect. 
I try and skim the health ranger for a few chuckles. That's not why I read SI. So where's their swimsuit issue? Oh, sorry. Wrong SI. Not Sports Illustrated, but Skeptical Inquirer. Evil Hypothesis Number 4. Screening tests beyond the standard medical examination are necessary for identifying disease and the risk of disease in apparently healthy asymptomatic adults. I will leave this issue to the more knowledgeable hands of Dr. Gorski. In this particular case, the author's argument seems to be based on 2020 vision of hindsight, which is apparently the primary argument in all seven cases. We thought screening might be effective. Studies showed it wasn't. So the hypothesis was flawed and we should not have done screening or done the studies. The author does not show in this or other example why the ideas were wrong in the context of the knowledge of the time that the ideas were first offered. It is only viewed through the all-powerful retrospectoscope that the author finds his deadly hypotheses. And it is ever so easy to predict the past. He also seems to argue that since our understanding of the ramifications of screening are not perfect, they are suspect, referencing himself for issues of PSA and mammograms. The author argues in part that since our understanding is imperfect, it is a deadly hypothesis. I have always been comfortable with making decisions based upon incomplete information, as this is the only kind of clinical information we ever have save the results of the occasional autopsy. The perfect is always the enemy of the good. He also complains about genetic screening. He knows that few people with high-risk genes will develop the disease, and they can't do anything about it anyway, so why bother? I wonder if the author has had any direct patient care. What patients dislike above all is uncertainty about why they have their disease, and prefer as much understanding and certainty about their health that they can gather. That is why they bother. And today's Why Bother may be tomorrow's critical insight. I have discussed how the show Connections made an impact on my view of the serendipity underlying advances. It may not be cost-effective or useful currently, and the author does note that for some patients, breast cancer, it may have utility. Again, it is the deadly hypothesis, except when it isn't. So much sound and fury, signifying nothing. But how do you know until after you have done all the studies and see what works and what doesn't? His argument still seems to be that since some patients' genetic testing has been shown to be of no utility, in the past, they should not have done the work to show that it is not useful, except where it is. It's sort of like going back in time to kill Hitler as a child because he was found to be evil in the future, even though you cannot tell from looking at the babe in the crib that he is going to be the source of Goodwin's law, and a lot worse. Circular arguments much? I do not get the impression the author is one for thinking outside the box. Usually new ideas lead nowhere, but then again, you never know unless you try. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, versus nothing ventured, nothing lost. It is often not the results of studies that are the issue, but how they are portrayed in the media, as noted by the author, and probably not intentionally, his entire article is a superb example of just this concept. Hmm, maybe this is a meta-article. 
Five, manipulating one's nutrition can prevent cancer. As he says, in retrospect, this hypothesis does not seem plausible, end quote. The whole crux of almost every one of his almost arguments, repeat after me, in retrospect, in retrospect, in retrospect, everything is clear. I've had MD after my name for 27 years, and I remember the uncertainty and interest in all seven of his not-so-deadly hypotheses. In the beginning, it was not as clear as he makes it out to be. As I say, the past is so easy to predict. Six. Personalized medicine will greatly advance medical care. His argument here is the same. It hasn't worked except where it has. Quote, Personalized medicine has only been shown to be cost-effective in a few well-defined situations, unquote. Hmm, how did we find these well-defined situations? By doing a ton of studies that showed benefit in some and none in others. I think the solution to this problem should be the ability to see into the future and know in advance which research ideas will bear fruit and which will be a bust. Precognition is apparently the only solution. Miss Cleo may be available to help review my research proposal, and I understand that her reading is free. Hypothesis number seven, cancer chemotherapy has been a major medical advance. Now, that's not so much a hypothesis as a statement. Of course, in some cases, chemo has been extremely effective. But the war on cancer has not been what it was promised, I think. Again, it seems his argument is the same hindsight argument. Where cancer chemo has been effective, it's great. And where it's not so good, it should not have been done in the first place to show that it wasn't effective. Again, I leave these details to Dr. Gorski should he choose to cover the topic. Of course, the author doesn't have a dog in the fight, and there are those quotes so commonly used by the dispassionate. You ready? Quote, when one dispassionately weighs the minimal prolongation of, quote, good, end quote, life in patients with metastatic cancer versus the very distressing side effects of chemotherapy with, quote, targeted, unquote, drugs, the case is close, end quote. I'm convinced He's dispassionate, and Jenny isn't anti-vax, just pro-safe vaccine. Here is my hypothesis to be tested. Anyone who argues that they are dispassionate isn't. They are fooling themselves and trying to fool others with their alleged practice of Ari Minu. I don't speak Vulcan very well. Me? I am never dispassionate. Although sometimes I don't care. But there is a difference. I suppose if he had written about HIV disease in 1990, before Hart, he would have said, when one dispassionately weighs the minimal prolongation of, quote, good life in patients with AIDS versus the very distressing side effects of chemotherapy with, quote, targeted drugs, the case is close, unquote. Yet all our mistakes with HIV and all of our blind ends eventually led to therapies that have made HIV an almost lifelong chronic illness. Actually, all diseases are lifelong, aren't they? They end when the life ends. What I meant to say is that it is a disease now with an almost normal life expectancy. Now, not everything the author says is nonsense. Some of his conclusions are reasonable. 
We need to do our science as best we can. The author argues that all of the errors above in the expenditures of his seven mostly not so deadly hypotheses, some of which are not even hypotheses, could have, quote, been avoided if the hypothetical deductive method had been applied rigorously. Rigorously, English is a second language, end quote. I am not convinced, since most of his arguments are based after the fact. I would be far more impressed if, by using the hypothetical deductive approach, no epidemiology, no early studies, no preliminary clinical trials, no basic science, if he could predict seven hypotheses that would warrant jumping straight to large, randomized, placebo-controlled trials so beloved by the author and the FDA. The Randy Prize awaits. We all need that godlike perfection and prescience. Unlike those, quote, guilty of perpetuating worthless practice, including, quote, scientists, unquote, God, he loves those quotes, who repeatedly employ flawed methods and then publish them, government agencies who fund such practices, editors of journals that publish pseudoscience, the USDA and NCI bodies that perpetuate unscientific regimens, unquote. My God, the health ranger is right. The conspiracy has incorporated itself into every aspect of the medical industrial complex. A different conspiracy than the one we get from the woo world, but a conspiracy nonetheless. It would appear that everyone is involved. And putting scientists in quotes. Come on, guy. A very health ranger thing to do. I don't suppose he is referring to the, quote, scientists at Merck who repeatedly employed flawed methods and then published them. Here I quote, Approximately 250 documents were relevant to our review. For the publication of clinical trials, documents were found describing Merck employees working either independently or in collaboration with medical publishing companies to prepare manuscripts and subsequently recruiting external academically affiliated investigators to be authors. Recruited authors were frequently placed in the first and second positions of the authorship list. For the publication of scientific review papers, documents were found describing Merck marketing employees developing plans for manuscripts, contracting with medical publishing companies to ghostwrite manuscripts, and recruiting external academically affiliated investigators to be authors. Recruited authors were commonly the sole author in the manuscript and offered honoraria for their participation. Dot, dot, dot. This case review of industry document demonstrates that clinical trial manuscripts related to rifoxacib, huh, is that how you pronounce it? were authored by sponsor employees and often attributed first authorship to academically affiliated investigators who did not always disclose industry financial support. Review manuscripts were often prepared by unacknowledged authors and subsequently attributed authorship to academically affiliated investigators who did not disclose industry financial support. End quote. Now what I see are people doing the best they can with the tools at hand. Mostly honest people, I say mostly, not knowing what their IRS forms show, working within many limitations to advance medical understanding. They do not deserve quotes applied to their work or the list of pseudoscientists. Not everyone is 
able to achieve the peerless perfect knowledge bestowed upon a professor of medicine and a Merck vice president. He says we need, quote, honest corporations. Ironic from a former Merck executive, casting the first stone and all that. I do not need quotes to show my snotty superiority. We need better regulation of, quote, unsafe and unproven products, unquote. Like Merck's Vioxx? Ooh, snap. The Merck shots are cheap shots. I know that. But they make me laugh. And above all, this is about making me laugh. It's all about me. Like the Health Ranger, I see someone with a bee in their bonnet, selectively and histrionically arguing in circles, hoping that if the same cognitive errors and circular reasoning are repeated, they will be believed as fact. I am not enthusiastic about the conclusions and arguments used being significantly more flawed than the research he rails against. It is not far in style and content from being the natural news. Science, at least, is ultimately self-correcting. This article, probably not so much. Now, of course, I am nobody from nowhere. I'm not a professor or a scientist or a vice president. I am a clinician and citizen who has to trust his sources of information. I was raised to judge a man or a woman by the company he keeps. When the New England Journal of Medicine published garbage on acupuncture, my trust in the journal fell a smidge. The Lancet, well, that's always had a reputation of being flaky. It's part of the British charm, and I've never held it against them. I just factor it in when I'm reading a paper. The Annals of Internal Medicine has been mostly untrustworthy for years. I've never forgiven them their series on alternative medicine. Clinical infectious diseases, that remains unsullied. And now the skeptical inquirer has slipped a bit as well. Now I think it needs to be inquirer with an E. Seven was primarily deadly for my confidence in its editors. Oh well, at least I can still trust the material published by DC. Marvel? Meh, not so much. So that ends QuackCast 61. This was a long one. 43 minutes of endless droning. Now that you're done, you can go online and write a glowing review on iTunes, or you can go to moremark.squarespace.com and join my multimedia empire, my blogs, my other podcasts. I even have a book, The Pus Whisperer, my first year of infectious disease blogs, rewritten, all the typos removed, hearty har har, and published as a single volume. Because the world needs more. Mark Chrislop. See you next time for the Quackcast. Bye.